The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We're going to bring in Shanali Basak. Uh, she is our Wall Street reporter to talk to us about the reaction to Jay Powell and what to expect the rest of the week and, uh, of course, after the long weekend. First off, though, I want to remind everyone listening that Bloomberg Markets is brought to you by Commonwealth, supporting more than 2,000 independent financial advisors with the solutions they need to grow a thriving business. Commonwealth, go where you grow Visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. That was so good. Thank you. Well done. Thanks. Actually forgot that I had to do that until after I introduced Shanali. So now it's a little bit awkward. That's okay. We'll recover. Shanali, um, what's going on? Uh, we basically, the market, as I noticed Katie Greifeld in her newsletter wrote, the markets puked on Friday. I don't know if I love that terminology, uh, but I guess that's a popular thing to say. Well, it's funny to think about the market puking. You do have volatility rising a little bit once again. It's at 26 now if you look at the VIX. And obviously all summer, even with volatility muted, you've had bond volatility, the move index still moving around a bit. So what was the reaction? You read one of my major notes that I got. When you look at how the buy side is perceiving what happened at Jackson Hole, there's a lot of questions about not just what's going to happen in the next two months, but what happens in the next six to 12 months. The frustration here is, yes, they were happy that forward guidance went away, but at the same time, they don't trust the Fed to be consistent over the next six to 12 months. And because? Well, because the Fed hasn't been consistent over the last six to 12 exactly. months. Actually, there was a great story out on the terminal that we, me and my sources have been kind of sharing around by Katarina Sariva. And it is about the, the history of Jackson Hole over the last two years under Powell and how much of his manifesto has really held up over the last two years. So credibility is really the question here um, and the, the willingness to combat inflation. What else are you watching? What else am I watching? Well, see, we were talking. We started this talking about the VIX at 26. Why does that matter from a, a Wall Street perspective, from a banking perspective? The post-Labor Day rush, should things stay muted, there was a sense that underwriting could come back, that maybe we can see an IPO or two again, a, a bigger one. Uh, there are some big names out there that we've been talking about. Instacart, for example. I know Emily Chang was talking to venture capitalists last week on her program about something like that. Can deal-making come back in true reform? It hasn't been that bad, but underwriting is really what the expectation has been. If you see the VIX keep rising, and then also, remember, quantitative tightening is taking off in larger form in September into October, should markets tighten up again, then all the hopes of doing all the things that make the bankers real money start to go away. Again, underwriting. Uh, what does trading look like into the second half of the year? 
you know, we talk about this. Paul, if he was here, would already be asking about it as what does it mean for bonus season? Yeah. <laughs> all Paul cares about is what bankers get paid. Because yeah. Paul was a banker and then all he cared about was what he got paid. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, and to be honest, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road. When you come back from Labor Day, there's a lot of travel. I know I'm already going to be in Miami and Paris through the end of the year. Uh, we have our own conferences Wait, why here. are you going to Paris? Uh, to interview the CEO of Morgan Stanley. Oh. And KKR. And so, Will you take like a week off before or after so you can just enjoy the I was literally, <laughs> okay, can I just say this? I was literally over the weekend going to actually ask Shanali if we should take a girl's trip to Paris. But now we can't do that because apparently James Gorman is more important than me. Um, let's talk to Al Myers <laughs> about that. Maybe he'll give us some time on both ends of the trip so that you and I can come back here super happy as we <laughs> deliver reports. But, you know, the, the reality is two weeks right after Labor Day or the, the full week after that, you have a lot of things in New York as well. You have super return in New York, so all the big private equity executives from across the U.S. and internationally are going to be in New York. You also have uh, SALT, which is that Anthony Scaramucci Skybridge conference. The mooch. So I know, you know, September is heated. It's booked. But again, the markets are choppy. Well, with conferences and with interviews, but not with IPOs or with launches. It's a right? lot of talk. It's a lot of talking to investors. It's a lot of preparing for more uh, stable times ahead. But again, to your point, uh, today's conversations lead to tomorrow's deals. Right. So, but this year, I mean, what's deal activity look like? What's IPO activity look like? What's, it seems kind of dead. It's, it's yeah. really bad out there. I, I don't even know what else to say because remember last year, the year before that, people were excited about not just IPOs. People were also excited about direct listings. They were excited about SPACs and now kind of the venue to go now public. Now they're just licking their wounds from all of those things that they yeah. unfortunately got involved in last year. Regrettably, <laughs> right? Yeah, the hangover is real and it'll probably be real into next year maybe one or two will squeeze through but again a lot of the things that really fueled the banking system this year does not seem to be continuing into next year and again VIX at 26 today we are in the last week of August what does that look like into next year the futures curve is telling you that it's going to get choppier into the end of the year it's pretty crazy although I have to say the VIX has been a pretty poor indicator of action I mean there were times last month when it felt incredible heated and the VIX was doing a whole lot of nothing. Now I know Friday was a big down day yeah. and the, that's when the VIX climbed up to basically 26 but it's it's not moving around that much today and I I just don't know about the VIX as an indicator. We haven't jumped above 36 so I don't think the VIX needs to get all that high to stifle activity. 25 is the one-year average now. That, that one We year haven't jumped above 26 you mean? 36 is where we were in March of 2022. Right. Okay. So we haven't jumped above 36 and today we're at 26, but you can get to 28, 29 and things already still feel pretty choppy out there. All right. Shanali Basic, Wall Street Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's get over to Pete Anderson right now, uh, joining us from Anderson Capital Management. Pete, I want to get first your take on 
um, Powell's eight-minute speech on Friday, or really the whole Jackson Hole event um, that seemed to drag markets down pretty substantially last week. Well, good morning. And yes, it did. And uh, eight minutes of really devastating testimony, in my opinion, you know, very, very frank uh, uh, narrative in terms of the way he had been speaking. So I think that's a pretty strong message. But, you know, the other thing we have to keep in context is that's one speech of many. And he is trying to figure out where the heck we are in this market cycle, just like the rest of us. You know, they have data. We all have the same data. And it is very challenging right now to formulate, you know, a pretty rational picture about where we are and how we should handle where we are and where we're going. So he's trying like the rest of us. Hats off to him. But uh, there are many, many possibilities in this scenario, isn't there? Certainly longer term. Um it's a big question mark about what the Fed does. Of course, in the next few months, it seems they are determined to continue raising at a, if not 75, then 50 basis point clip. What do you expect? Well, I expect that inflation is probably going to take care of itself. Uh, not completely, but, you know, we have already seen really pretty remarkable changes in gas prices housing inventories, and even lumber, plywood prices, all those types of things. And we didn't require Fed intervention for that. That was just supply and demand taking over, classic dynamics like that. So what I worry about is that the Fed might be acting too aggressively. And as you know, there's a, a delay in the impacts of his decisions. So we might be heading to a period where he might over-tighten as we see naturally inflation just kind of receding. So that's what I worry about, but I do think that he probably will do 50 to 75 uh, coming this next month. And I do worry a little bit about that because I think by then we will see even more signs of inflation, you know, or deflation, sorry, where we're not really focusing on the natural dynamics that supply demand has. And remember, we're, we're, there is no playbook for this recovery because it is truly unique. So as we struggle to look back at history and say these are the rules of thumb, I don't really think we have many rules of thumb given this unique circumstance that we're in. Well, Peter, you say that there's no playbook, but let's go back to just a couple of years ago, 2015 through 2018, where you had mm -hmm. a series of rate hikes. You had yes. quantitative tightening. You had an equity market that even by then at that point was also considered extremely hot and extremely overvalued. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the playbook to go by? The idea that the stock market can actually ha handle this QT and can handle these rate hikes because it has before? Well, very good point. And, you know, I struggle with that myself, to be honest with you. But I do think uh, when we look at the root cause of where we find ourselves presently, very, very different from anything in the past. I mean, even 2008, for instance, which I think uh, is the most comparable in terms of the state of confusion that we're in right now. So I look at what caused us to get here, and I find that the cause is unique. And because the cause is unique, I also think the solution might be unique. And, you know, we are desperately hanging on to every single data point that comes out. And many of these data points are approximations. So I think you have to blend all that together. I know what you're saying in terms of, oh, say, uh, yield curve dynamics and rules of thumb about, you know, if the yield curve is inverted. But even that, this time, I think, might be different. 
in terms of uh, you know what the Fed can do, you, you said you're concerned about over tightening. What what does that look like? Uh, over tightening. What what happens to an economy or this economy because it is pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, if they acknowledge that let, let's assume they do over tighten okay and that's a big assumption but let's just play that scenario out then i do think um if they acknowledge that they have over tightened that could be a market rally however if they are denying or ignoring that and the market starts to signal that to them that could be more dangerous because then we don't know what the next steps the fed will take well and you know, the and the effect on business the effect on investment the effect on consumers how how bad does it get for the economy i think it could be very serious in, in that um you know higher rates could just stifle uh, a natural recovery. And that's the problem. You know, if you play out, just as I mentioned, say, lumber prices or housing inventory, you know, just imagine how that could get crushed yep. if we actually put the brake on too strong. So, you know, nobody envies the Fed's position, but I, ho- I am hopeful that they are intuitive enough. And I hate to use the word intuition when we're talking about these kinds of things, but I do think it does come to the forefront where you have to try to blend all the scenario uh, and signals that you're getting and try to incorporate the fact that we got here from uh, coronavirus. Yep. And it has impacted the nation and the world. Well, Those are the things you have to factor in that are very different this time. Coronavirus and then, you know, like trillions upon trillions upon trillions of uh, fiscal spending. Pete, we never have enough time with you. I'm so glad we could spe- we could get you on the show, though. So, so thanks so much for joining us. Peter Anderson is the founder of Anderson Capital Management. Let's bring in uh, a true expert here, Amina Baker, a chief OPEC correspondent and Dubai deputy bureau chief of energy intelligence. Uh, let me put that question to you. Thank you for joining us as always. Bakker, excuse me, I am standing corrected. Let me ask you, why do we see that spread in oil at the moment? Hi, good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, there is a huge spread between the two, as you noted. And uh, perhaps, I mean, we're, we're going to see a, a further uh, spread. And I mean, the, the, this wasn't the case uh, a few weeks ago. You saw that Brent fell uh, to $90. Now it's back to 103 um, and this mainly happened really because uh, after comments uh, from the Saudi energy minister hinting that OPEC plus had previously uh, cut production and that comment was enough for the market to, to realize that cutting production might be on the table again. So we saw Brent rise uh, based on, uh, on that news. Um, whether or not we're going to see the OPEC Plus group uh, go ahead with that uh, hint of a cut uh, remains to be seen. The group is supposed to meet on the 5th of uh, September, and they say all options are open. But um, I think, I mean, just looking at Brent prices here, uh, the, the, the main reason I believe the Saudi energy minister hinted that, at these cuts um, wasn't really to, to raise prices. It was more about gaining uh, control over the market. He was worried that overbearish or overbullish news is moving this market. Speculation is moving this market. News, um, daily news that we're seeing that perhaps the U.S. is going to reach a deal with Iran and uh, Iran would supply more barrels into the market. Uh, I mean, there's uh, the influx of, of news and that's 
influencing the market. So I would say the market in general, oil mm. is not reacting on fundamentals. It's more of a kind of uh, psychological disturbance or to borrow a phrase the Saudi energy minister used, he says it's uh, and it's in a, a, a stage of like an instability uh, and uh, schizophrenia. Um, so that's that's the situation Amina, we're in. Now. What, uh, what's the real likelihood from from your vantage point of Iranian barrels coming on to, um, you know, the, the Western market from, from here, from America, it looks incredibly unlikely that yeah. uh, that something's really going to happen that would lead to, you know, those sanctions coming off. Sure. Um, I would agree with that. I mean, I know that from uh, from the Iranian press or Iranian media, even from Iranian officials, they seem to be a lot more optimistic and they want to keep reminding the market that in order to, uh, to, to, to to move prices down, Iran needs to come back. Iran needs to fill that gap. There isn't enough spare capacity and they're able to do that. But mm. just um, thinking about it uh, in terms of, uh, of signing a deal with the US, I, I completely agree with what you're saying here that it's com really complicated. Negotiation is ongoing and I don't see this deal getting signed anytime soon, but that doesn't stop the market from reacting. Every time we Fair. see a proposal or talk of a proposals, we're, we're seeing uh, prices move on that. So that's, that's a fair point. In terms of spare capacity, I mean, Talking about cutting production makes sense to me that the market would react to that. Talking about raising production, I mean, how much can they really raise production? Um, well, let's look at the group as OPEC+. Plus. Uh, I would say that there are only two members out of that 23-member uh, group that have spare capacity left or have capacity that they could bring to the market. In UAE, a, in a, the UAE and the Saudis. UAE and Saudi. UAE and Saudi. So between the two, I would say they're sitting at um, 2.5, 2.3 million barrels. Uh, so that's that's the amount that could be brought to the market. But bear in mind that both countries, they don't want to max out their capacity because we're at a time here where sitting on spare capacity is incredibly valuable. It's become more uh, valuable than than actual production and provides these countries a lot of leverage and political leverage. And I think that part of why the Biden administration or Biden visited uh, Jeddah recently was because Saudi Arabia still sits on that capacity. So they're not going to max out to 12 uh, anytime soon and, uh, you know, um, not have that in their hands. So, Amina, that's the supply side. Speak to us a little bit about the demand side. I mean, how do you go about calculating this kind of stuff or really studying the demand picture when you do have the likes of China and India buying discounted crude from Russia still? How does that affect the demand pressures on the commodity market? Um, well, we, we saw, I mean, OPEC predicts in 2023 that there is going to be uh, an increment in demand. It's not as it's not going to be at the same level of 2022, but there's going to be uh, increased demand. The, the, there's a risk of the recession still hitting. And again, that's uh, that's impacting uh, uh, markets. But uh, I mean, that, that small demand increase that really needs to be fulfilled by uh, the remaining spare capacity, which isn't much. Um, OPEC members remain optimistic about uh, the demand side, but also very cautious. 
Um, as you noted that, uh, yeah, Russia is diverting a lot of its crude that is normally sold into Europe. Now it's being sold at discounts to, to India and China, who we understand are, are storing uh, a lot of it. Um, or refining it same, and selling it straight back to those Europeans that or straight back exactly <laughs> yeah. doing that cycle which yeah. uh, which is happening, uh, so they're they're taking advantage of the situation. But at the same time, I mean, we we've, we've gotten a lot of calls from uh, from uh, from people in India and China asking us if the Gulf is going to be reducing uh, their their allocations there and looking to sell their oil at at higher prices to to Europe. Um, which isn't the case. I mean, the, the Gulf states haven't cut their allocation. Well, and uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of European com- countries are also still buying Russian crude, right? I mean, these yeah. uh, yes, uh, Italy, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we we can't pretend that everyone is um, following along, and it doesn't even kick in. I don't think until February the real um, sanctions there. I mean, a great having you on. I hope we can get you back soon um, because your insight and your intelligence very key to uh, helping to us to understand these markets. Amina Bakker is chief OPEC correspondent at Energy Intelligence. We're watching uh, Brent Crude at 103.42. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I got a great message from Dan Curtis earlier. Yeah. Who is, a, he's one of, one of our producers in London. I believe he's your boss. He is my in boss. In a sense. Um, in so, every sense. Something that, very cool. He said the Tesla Model S uh, 60 so that's the cheaper one. It has a 62 kilowatt hour battery mm-hmm. with a 210 mile range, meaning it's about 0.3 kilowatt hours per mile. Um, so he has worked out through that at a thousand euros per megawatt hour, which is one euro per kilowatt hour. That works out to like 30 euro cents per mile. And as I said, we're at parity. So that's about the same as 30 yeah. cents cents. Um, fuel economy in Europe, the average is six liters Per 100 kilometers, that's how they measure it instead of miles per gallon, or about uh, 0.1 liters per mile. Um, Premium gas in Germany is 179 in euros, which, as we know, is $1.79 per liter, um, or 17 cents per mile. So in order to have parity between a Tesla and an internal combustion engine car, one that burns gasoline, um, with gas at these prices, electricity needs to drop to 586 euros or dollars a kilowatt hour. Right now, we're approaching 1,000. So right wow. now, it's more economical to drive a gas car in Europe, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting, actually, yeah. now that you've like laid out the Let's bring line. in Kevin Tynan from Bloomberg Intelligence. He's a senior automotive analyst. And Kevin, you know, th- there are a couple of news events that prompted me to say, let's get Kevin on. <laughs> Uh, first was the news out of California that they want to um, ban uh, the selling of internal combustion engines by 2035. So no more gas engines by then. Okay, it's a long way off, but is that possible? Uh, well, saying it is possible. And, and by the way, I'm with you on the James Taylor thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, Kevin, that was a betrayal. Yeah. Well, I'm a big Carly Simon fan, so anyway. But... Um, 
but you know, I, I, I laugh because I don't think any of these people are going to be making decisions in 2035 if we're put on that path now anyway. Um, and I still feel like, and you know this, Matt, right? We talk about this all the time. Like there's so many unintended consequences of this technological singularity of going to EV, right? That that I feel like we're just looking at one very, very short part of the process. I mean, from mining of materials to disposal of batteries that says this is better, this is the way we should go, and, and I'm just not sure. And I think we're starting to hear a little bit more about, like, hey, maybe we need some diversity in how we're powering these things and what choices we have yes. as consumers. And, and inclusion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just I just feel like we're so focused on this one, on the tailpipe or lack thereof and saying this is better and I'm just not I'm just not convinced. And I'm not anti E V, I'm not pro internal combustion. I'm just saying I think we're being very, very nearsighted on this. A hundred percent, because who can forecast out to 2035? I mean, it's hard enough to forecast out to 2023. The other uh, story. I don't even know what's for lunch today. Exactly. Uh, well, if Paul Sweeney were here, he would tell us. He always knows what's for <laughs> He really for lunch. does. Yeah. And sometimes we'll bring I think there's up, actually a function nice. on the terminal that tells you what's for lunch, at least Chomp, here at Bloomberg. Chomp Go. Chomp Go, that's right. Yeah. Uh, another story over the weekend that is... Um, Closer on the horizon, France, because of, I guess, a promise by Macron during his campaign, France is now going to, or at least it thinks it can, allow any consumer to lease or rent an electric vehicle for 100 euros a month, $100 a month, because we're at parity. Um, that, to me, seems nuts. I mean, what if too many people are takers? Yeah, and, and this you know, is one of those things that, you know, you have to think about the entire transaction, right? And I've said this for years, that really who controls this is the manufacturer. So what basically is being said here is like, yeah, you you can create demand at $100 a month. Can we do the supply? And how are those manufacturers made whole by the government, right? So the vehicle costs a certain amount. And you can give it to somebody. You can sell things unprofitably all day long if you want to. But does the government step in and say, like, hey, that lease should be, you know, four times that, five times? Well, no, that. I'm guessing they're. I'm guessing they're going to make the manufacturer whole. But even right. if, uh, even if they said to the manufacturer, we'll give you a million dollars a month, they right. still can't produce that many vehicles that fast. It that's takes time. That, that's exactly right. And, and where are you going to charge them? I mean, I already can't find a charger. And you know, when I'm driving an EV. Just me around New York. Admittedly, Paris could have more, but I don't think it's that many more. All right, we don't have time, unfortunately. But Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Kriti Gupta here in the studio with me, Matt Miller. And as you know, Kriti, I lived in Germany for many, many years. Mm -hmm. um, studied there for a little while in Tübingen. I worked there for Bloomberg, a couple stints. And I love the country. So with all due respect... I'm going to tell you something ridiculous about Germany. <laughs> Under the current system, and this is regulated by law, energy producers in Germany that have lower costs or could charge lower costs to consumers like wind uh, energy, there are tons of windmills around Germany, or solar power providers, their prices are set by whoever has the highest price in the market. 
So they could offer lower prices to consumers with wind and solar, but since gas-fired power plants demand higher prices, wind and solar prices are set at those levels. Is that not ridiculous? It, so just to be clear, it means that you can't actually afford the renewable energy. No, it means that they can't charge lower prices. The regulator makes them charge the same price as whoever has the highest price. Uh, right now, I think Robert Habeck and some others in Germany want to reform that. Like, obviously. Let's bring in Maria today, a Bloomberg Opinion uh, reporter, and she is deep in it when it comes to energy pricing, energy shortages, and uh, European law and regulation. Wait, first of all, where are you, Maria? I'm in Spain, Matt. Uh, and you know what? I'm going to give you a little secret, but just don't tell anyone. I'm on my way to meet our friend and colleague, Anne-Marie, and this time it's fun, not work. We're going together to Ibiza. Uh, Ibiza. And you didn't invite us. Ibiza, to me, just sounds like work. But I get it. Um, For young people, it's a great place to party round the clock. In terms of um, European energy prices, um, what is going on over there? I mean, you've already got a huge crisis due to supply shortage, um, thanks to Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. But the regulatory framework seems ludicrous, not just in Germany, but across the continent. What is Ursula von der Leyen, um, the EU president planning on, commission president planning on doing about it? Well, uh, listen, Matt, I think to me, the relevant thing today is that Brussels finally woke up today. Uh, Remember, for weeks uh, now already, uh, you know, I wrote about this at length. I'm back on TV, by the way, next week. And essentially, uh, they kind of seem to be in this illusion that, yes, winter is going to be very tough, but somehow we'll manage. But there was no policy action behind it. I think last week, of course, where every record, and you know this very well, was smashed on the gas uh, market, the futures market, they really kind of something hit and, and, and it really clicked. The market is broken. And the issue here is that it goes down to consumers and we're in for a very tough winter. Today, Brussels finally woke up and to me that's a positive spin uh, on this. Uh, today, we heard from the head of the commission, von der Leyen, where she said uh, this is not just about demand destruction. And nonetheless, that is the key issue, by the way. They really say this behind the scenes. It has to be about demand destruction. It's the only way you can deal with a supply shock of this magnitude. But the other thing is the electricity market, the energy market in Europe is very complex because this isn't a single market. It really changes by country. You know this very well. You're in Germany. I'm in Brussels. We probably have a very different uh, energy market, the two of us. But one thing, and you alluded to this, is that gas is really setting the price for everything else. Gas is going through the roof. It trickles down to everything else, renewables, the electricity price, all of this. And I think for European officials, it's now very clear that they have to, A, stage an intervention, and two, change the way the market operates. So I think we're heading into a new space in which gas is not going to call the shots, at least uh, the price for it. And I was having a conversation with a contact of mine, and I asked him, you know, what does it mean? And he cited the Terminator, meaning we have to go all in into this market, but also change the fact that gas should not be the benchmark. So what about how do you actually decouple some of these markets? Is there any sort of methodology that's actually been put forward on how you actually do this? Or is this still just in the early idea stage? 
Look, I, th- I think it's very early days. This is w- going to warrant a big debate. The fact that this isn't a single market, uh, the rules are not applied to all in the same way. But I think if I look at countries like Spain and Portugal, and of course, I always keep a, a very close eye on my home country. I have a, a national bias there. But to me, and I bring up Spain because in this case, the Spanish uh, kind of saw this coming a year ago. And they looked at their own market and they went, we don't really use that much gas. We have a lot of renewables. Our electricity is jumping for ways that we do not think are, are warranted or actually reflect our energy uh, mix and consumption. So we want to break away from the gas. They pulled out of a single benchmark. They were able to get exemptions from the country in which they separate the gas from the actual cost of making the electricity so they were able to lowball their bill. So there was an uncoupling there from the electricity price to the gas price. And if you look at bills, of course, they've jumped in Spain and Portugal, but they're nowhere near the prices that we're seeing in Germany and and the French or Belgium. You know, they're paying maybe 600 euros uh, for Spanish households, more 150. So clearly there was an effect there that really brought it down. Could this be replicated for the entire European market? I'm not sure, but it does offer clues that there are ways to get flexibility and also break away from gas, which is now the big issue. Maria Tadeo, thanks for joining us. I can't wait till you reemerge on Bloomberg Television in September. Everyone have a fantastic Monday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.